Hello and welcome to Warpod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme. In our monthly Westminster Roundup podcast, we give you a quick roundup analysis of the two top stories from Westminster, chosen by Liam, that's him, and Megan, that's her. So, Megan, what's the highlight of the month for you then? I don't know if anyone's heard, but there's a little bit of tension between Iran and the US. Oh, I, I and didn't know. No, not at all. And that's on the basis of several things that have happened in the last few weeks. So there have been a, several attacks on oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman um, in early June. And then on the June 21st, a US drone was shut down, supposedly by Iran. Mm-hmm. This was the big global hawk, which yeah. is only a surveillance drone, right? Exactly. It's like a non-combat, but it's very expensive. there was a debate about whether it was in the right territory or not. But it, anyway, oh, that's, that's right, yeah. as well. Um, and then on Thursday last week, Trump apparently authorized airstrikes against Iran and then changed his mind to last a minute, which is a little bit scary. Um, and instead he authorized... Oh, nah, not today. No, nah, yeah. don't fancy it. Maybe next week. <laughs> um, and instead he launched cyber attacks against Iran's weapon systems. And I think that's interesting for us mm. from a remote warfare perspective in that we have been looking into um, how you define whether or not we're at war for a long yeah, time. Yeah, sure. And cyber warfare is one of those things that just fell under the threshold for when we typically think that countries are at war. And this was quite public, wasn't it? Like Trump said that this had been done, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah. It was very, I think almost a little bit proud. He had a whole <laughs> speech about making Iran great again. Yeah. Which is very inspiring. Um, and so it plays into this whole debate about when we had war, and it, it is something that's really difficult mm-hmm. to tell. Um, and it's something that in 2016, in a debate on Libya, Philip Hammond came out and refuted this challenge and said that actually um, the government felt perfectly capable to make the distinction between when we're at war and when mm-hmm. we're not. And we've been trying to say that the way that war has changed since Iraq and Afghanistan, it is actually quite hard to tell um, yeah. at that point. Um, so you often see that we don't have boots on the ground in large numbers like we used to. Instead, we have people training other local forces, sure. or we have special forces, or we have, as we see with this example, um, cyber warfare. Mm-hmm. And so it's difficult to tell when we're at war. Um, and we've been trying to ask UK government several times how they mm-hmm. define it and how they kind of clarify um, what points make it so that you're in combat. Yeah, 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 sure, combat. sure. Um, and so in April last year, we launched an FOI against the MOD to ask them how they define it. And they came back a few months later after a lot of pressure. Um, and said that they don't have a definition. What is this you speak of? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> combat, non-combat? I have no idea. And then the following week, uh, Christopher Blunt asked a question, a parliamentary question, yeah. where he was told by Mark Lancaster that there is no definition and no... Yeah. Um, so Mark Lancaster, the Armed Forces Minister, right? So, exactly. Yeah. Um, and no list of criteria as well. Which is really interesting. Absolutely quite interesting, and versus like not having any yeah. kind of list that you can yeah, use yeah. to, to talk part I, I think I that. believe that... Um, if I recall, this was something that came up when we were looking at the announcement about deploying further troops to Afghanistan, wasn't yeah, it? Um, and, and why it had been determined that it should be a non-combat mission rather than a combat mission, given that you know the security situation in Afghanistan exactly. isn't great, and whether that was really going to deliver sort of on what the government was hoping to deliver in terms of a political solution with, yeah. with the Taliban and the, the, the government in Kabul. And we've so, seen yeah. several times where we have troops being sent very close to the front line, mm-hmm. or even to the front line, um, and then they're being, we're being told that they're non-combat, but yeah. they are still training forces that are really close or yeah. to deployed to the front sure, line. Sure. And so it's hard to tell um, how much danger you need to be in for it to be classified as combat. Exactly. And we're not necessarily arguing that we need like a very clear mm-hmm. definition of combat, yeah, yeah, yeah. it might lead to people trying to just avoid that threshold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we are saying that it's good to have some, some clarification of what it means to be at war. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to talk about um, 
I have you finished, by the way. Sorry, I'm just cutting it. I'm just cutting into like <laughs> my story is this. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about the fun and games of the conservative leadership contest, but I'm going to just wait on that because it's just a little brief thing. Um, but one of the other big stories that has obviously come out, and I think it was a surprise to me, if not others, that the Court of Appeal uh, ruled that um, the UK's government selling of arms to Saudi Arabia was unlawful. And this follows the campaign against the arms trade um, campaign, effectively, to stop the sale of arms to Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. especially with regards to the conflict that's ongoing in Yemen and the humanitarian devastation that has been caused by the ongoing conflict. Um, So just to clarify what this means is that the, the, the judge has effectively said that the licenses in place should be reviewed, but they, it wouldn't be that they would be immediately um, suspended. And I think the way that the government has interpreted this as well is quite interesting because what they have said is that, you know, they, they look very seriously, the, the, the usual line, they look very seriously yeah. about export obligations and they, they, the process is very robust. And I think what the government has said in response is that, you know, it wasn't about... Um, whether the decision was right or wrong to grant the export licenses, but rather that there have been concerns about the rationality of the process used to reach the decisions. And this is a quote from Liam Fox, the uh, Secretary of State for International Trade. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's an interesting one because it's definitely something that we've been talking about definitely. in terms of how are we ensuring that by providing arms, the UK is not then complicit in potential IHO abuses, and there's a lot of evidence about um, uh, proposed sort of um, IHO abuses that have been committed in in Saudi, uh, sorry, in Yemen by Saudi Arabia. Um, But also that it might not be great policy as well. Like even if it's not, even if it's not deemed to be unlawful, which of course this this uh, case perhaps argues it potentially is or is um, or has been. that actually when the UK is trying to be, you know, the pen holder on Yemen at the UN to uphold the rules-based international system, be global Britain yes. post-Brexit, that is it really good policy for the UK to continue to sell arms to one of the parties to the conflict? And of course, we've had lots of uh, stories about the UK potentially actually being a party to the conflict. The, yeah. the news that we discussed last month, I think it was about special forces uh, being, British special forces being on the ground engaging combat battles. Uh, with the Houthis. So I think it really does, again, add uh, fuel to the fire around this topic of, on, on the UK security partnership and broader relationship with, with Saudi Arabia. And, and as we know, the UK is, has licensed more than £4.7 billion pounds worth of exports. So it's no wonder that this has been a very politically sensitive issue because the argument from the government is that it benefits the UK economy uh, and also that by selling arms we, ha- we get influence yeah. by, by doing so. Uh, and it's been hard to clarify exactly how that works. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, we had that we had that report that was we commissioned for the uh, Policy Institute of Kings yeah. to to look into that argument about well, we get strategic influence by selling arms to Saudi Arabia by having a relationship with Saudi Arabia. But you know, okay, prove it. In terms of the public available sources, it, there wasn't strong evidence that there was this great strategic leverage that the mm-hmm. UK had over Absolutely. Saudi Arabia, and perhaps it was in fact the other way around with Saudi Arabia influencing. Us and I mean, there's research by the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, 
that looks at um, and monitors global weapons in the industry. And Britain is in second place as a, as a supplier of major arms to Saudi Arabia, behind the US and um, ahead of France. And then maybe it's good to say here as well that this is part of like a wider international uh, yes. challenge to the sales of arms. To exactly. So we're seeing the same thing happen yeah. in the US with yeah. a lot of challenges coming up. And I know there's been some stories about how this might have implications for Australia, and and other countries, well, and Germany. Exactly. Yeah. So, I think in Spain they had uh, revoked um, or stopped yeah, sale of arms, but then they then thought, actually, no, we're going to yeah, carry on. So back. I don't know what's happening there at the moment, but that's quite interesting. Just just really quickly um, on some of the sort of the 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 response from different parties. So, for example, Labour and Liberal Democrats have called for the government to actually immediately suspend all arms sales. This isn't new. The Labour Party came out this before. And also Emily Thornberry, the Shadowy Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, has come out saying that she wants, or their party, want a full parliamentary or public mm -hmm. inquiry, take your pick, um, to find out how the breach of law was allowed to happen. Um, and I think, it again, sort of going to that point about complicity, it's a really interesting debate to be had about, OK, if you're going to sell arms, what processes does the UK government need to put in place or can put in place Definitely to make sure that they are being used appropriately and in line with our values in international law. And how public are those processes going to be? So exactly. Like organizations like us come in and say, yeah. are these robust, yeah. are they working as yeah. they And okay. if, if the risks are just too high yeah. um, for the UK. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's a really, really interesting story. And the last thing that I wanted to end with, clearly it's been, as I say, quite an exciting time for people who have been following the, the news. I'm, I sometimes feel like the media are more interested in this than actually the general public. Definitely <laughs> Like, oh my God. I don't yeah. know if you saw t today or the live of the last week that Boris Johnson has said that he likes to, to make model buses out of old wine crates and paint them and make the passengers <laughs> look really happy. I mean, it's like, is this news? What's happened to the debate about Brexit in the future? Also like, beyond that, going back to the <laughs> Like how, what about the defense? Yes, Why are they exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's quite interesting. I don't think Boris Johnson has said anything about this, but Jeremy Hunt has been very open about his support for increasing defense spending, which mm -hmm. I, f I find quite interesting because you know, he's been foreign secretary. And there was a report that came out last week by the British Foreign Policy Group saying effectively that the FCA has been castrated for so many years that it needs great investment. You've got the foreign secretary saying, actually, no, we need more funding for the yeah. MAD. I mean, I think people in FCO would be a bit miffed about the fact Absolutely. that he's not fighting their corner. I mean, he's fighting, he fought the corner back, back in the um, Department of Health and Social Care, and now yeah. he's, he's not doing the same for FCO, seemingly. Um, but I think this is a really interesting topic. Clearly, it is probably slightly political in terms of trying to appeal to conservative, excuse me, conservative voters to back him. But... Also, this, this, the fact that he's said, he's come out saying we need an extra 15 billion to guard against Russia, but without saying, well, what are our strategic priorities? We've just exactly. had the modernising defence programme, the review, looking at sort of the changing strategic threat picture. But okay, let's look at what our strategic priorities are and then say what yeah. capabilities we need, not let's just spend money and buy capabilities because that looks great. Um, we can have a massive, you know, four different aircraft carriers rather than the two that we've sort of got. Uh, or nearly got got one at least. Um, and I think that that's why it's very much a political rule where it seems like it, because yeah. it, it is without that very deep thinking about mm. what's going to be useful mm. and how it's going to be useful. It's yeah. very much just about showing intent, like yeah. intentions and yeah. trying to show that you have support for the MOD. Exactly. And I, I suppose it's fine to, there are concerns in MOD because the, the National Audit Office has said that there are, um, yeah, alarm bells are ringing, yeah, the red warnings are around um, funding for, for uh, the MOD. And the MOD itself has admitted that there are clearly they probably want to get more money so they're going to admit to like there being 
gaping holes in, in, in funding. So, yeah, I, I mean, there's nothing necessarily wrong with saying that we might need you know, a debate about how much we spend on defence, but it's got to be entrenched. And as you say, that strategic discussion about what our priorities are, what can we afford? Definitely. We're apparently coming out of an age of austerity. Do we need to spend more on public services? You know, Jeremy Hunt's other commitment is around social care. Boris Johnson's come out supporting more funding in education. You know, there's not, as I think Amber Rudd once said, the former Home Secretary, a magic money tree. You know, so where are we going to yeah. commit things and where are our, our priorities? Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really interesting one to follow, depending on what happens in the leadership contest and what the implications might be for defence in the future. But, I mean, other than that, that is, that is the month from that's us. That's for me as well, yeah. Thank you very much for listening. We look forward to talking to you again next month.